So, Dale, I don't know how much you know about therapy, but it usually starts by you telling me a little something about yourself. I thought there'd be couches and Kleenex and shit. Look at me, son. It's not your fault. Do you want to talk about some of those feelings? I love you. Obviously, you don't know me. So how's this supposed to work? You sit, I sit, we talk. Hi, I'm Dr. Sam. And I'm Dr. Fran. Welcome to Freudian Scripts, the podcast where we put your favorite TV shows and movies on the hypothetical couch and take a deeper dive into the way psychology is portrayed. We analyze the way therapy looks in entertainment, discuss the way psychological diagnoses are portrayed, and break down other psychological themes seen on our screens. As a reminder, Freudian Scripts is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult with your mental health professional with any questions and seek care if needed. The content and clips in today's episode will contain explicit language and mature and adult themes. For today's episode, these include childhood trauma and abuse, as well as suicide, and these may be difficult topics for some. If you or someone you know is struggling with or at risk for suicide ideation, you can get help by calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Welcome to the next session in our Spooky Sessions series for October. As you know, Dr. Fran and I like to kind of bring out the creepier, spookier, weirder kind of movies and TV shows for our spooky sessions. Um, and you might be a little bit disappointed because we had mentioned that we'd be covering the movie 50-50 next. But fear not, we will be coming back and launching our 50-50 session in early November. But for this month, we want to feature scary movies and topics. So please don't fret. We'll be coming back around to that one. And we hope you enjoy today's. We are excited. We did allude to this in our last spooky session that we would be covering today, a creepy and suspenseful thriller, Sixth Sense. A lady. She broke her neck. Where is she? Standing next to my window. Did you ever talk to your mom about how things are? I don't tell her things. Why not? Because she doesn't look at me like everybody else, and I don't want her to. I don't want her to know. Know what? I feel like this movie is a really popular one, um, especially when it came out. And now that it is over 20 years old, it's still frequently referenced in popular culture. Um, You know, people still like to say, I see dead people and definitely one of the greatest twists of all time. This is a mega spoiler alert. If you have not seen this 22 or so year old movie, we are going to be addressing the main spoiler. So you might want to pause if you don't know somehow how this movie ends. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like this is a movie that people know. Even if they haven't seen, they know generally the premise. A lot of people know the twist, even if they haven't seen the movie. Um, It was fun to go back and watch it. I think I had seen it, but it had been years. So it was fun to go back and watch it, even though I knew the ending. Um, For those who haven't seen it or are wanting a rewatch, you can rent it on Amazon Prime or Apple TV, and it can be streamed for free right now on Peacock, for those of you who have that streaming service. Um, And it's been on cable a lot in October because it's, you know, leading up to Halloween. And again, this is one of the most like famous classic 
kind of horror suspense thriller movies. Definitely. And kind of before we started recording this session, Dr. Fran did reveal that she was with one such person who did not know the twist ending yeah. to this extent. So the friend that she watched it with had not been familiar. So I think that that's interesting that there are still some people out there. So definitely if you are one of them, hit pause, go and stream on one of those services and come back to us. Um, we're excited because this movie, other than being you know a great movie, having a great twist, has been on our radar for a while because it does feature a child psychologist. So I think it will be a good one and a spooky one. So as Dr. Sam alluded to, this movie has been around for a while. The Sixth Sense is a 1999 supernatural psychological thriller written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, who I mentioned last session is one of the only kind of thriller producer directors that I kind of like because I really do like the <laughs> twists and the suspense, the more thriller aspects of things. Uh, the movie stars Bruce Willis as Dr. Malcolm Crow, a child psychologist, and Haley Joel Osment as Cole, um, who is his patient who can see and talk to the dead. Um, it's really interesting because this movie was originally nominated for six Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. So Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor for Haley Joel Osment, and then Best Supporting Actress for the um, actress who plays his mother in the movie. Um, so the, And it also was the highest grossing domestic horror film for nearly two decades. Yeah, so really showing just how well done of a movie this was, um, and also just how popular it is. Like the highest grossing movie for two decades, especially in that horror genre. And as you know from our last mini episode, this can be a genre that doesn't always get the credit it's due. And so this movie's definitely a heavy hitter, a lot of punch behind this one. I will say I was a little nervous to rewatch this movie because it is known as kind of being in that horror genre and it's, you know, supernatural, paranormal. Um, so I was on the edge of my seat waiting for the ghost to pop out. <laughs> but overall, I would say this was not that scary of a movie. So for any other like big scaredy cats like me out there, this is an okay movie. Like know that the ghosts are not that scary. <laughs> There's a lot of just like suspense buildup, but it was not that bad. I don't know if I would actually classify it as a horror film myself. Well, there you go, Freudian scripters. On the scale of horror, it gets a Dr. Fran approved, which means not scary. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Launching into it, <clears throat> the movie starts off, as we mentioned, with Dr. Malcolm Crow and his wife. They, you know, seem to be at home. They're in a good mood. And we find out that they are actually celebrating because Dr. Crow has won an award in his field of child psychology for professional excellence. In recognition of his outstanding achievement in the field of child psychology, mm -hmm. his dedication to his work, and his continuing efforts to improve the quality of life. Okay. His continuing efforts to improve the quality of life for countless children and their families, the city of Philadelphia proudly bestows upon its son, Dr. Malcolm Crow, that's you, the merest citation for professional excellence. And in this first scene, we really get a sense of just how important Dr. Crow's uh, career and profession is to him, um, how much he values his work. Uh, his wife even makes a comment about like, you know, this is really like it, all the sacrifices that you've made and putting everything second, including me, ouch, we'll come back to that later. Um, you know, really, you're getting the recognition that's due to you because you are so good and you have a gift for helping children and teaching them to be strong. So we definitely launch into the movie like knowing that Dr. Crow is a child psychologist and apparently really good at what he does and also really dedicated to his work. 
Yeah, and I really love that we're covering a movie that has a child psychologist in it because I don't know if I'm thinking back if we've covered many that there's like a specific psychologist who has that designation of like child and adolescent psychology. But we have alluded to the fact that Dr. Sam and I both have a background in this area. So it's just really cool to have that highlighted as a specific specialty area that we maybe haven't seen as much in other films. Very true. I think the only other one, if I'm remembering correctly, is Dr. Fox from Woman in the Window. She does say that she's a child psychologist, but, you know, given the nature of her, you know, quote-unquote agoraphobia in that movie, she doesn't leave the home and we don't get to see any therapy and we don't really talk about her profession or the movie doesn't talk about her profession much. So this is really the first one where we're seeing a child psychologist in action. Yeah, absolutely. And from right off the bat, even in this opening scene, we start to get that suspense and that, you know, creepy music, which if you haven't listened to our mini session last time (laughs) on the use of sound and horror films, this movie, I think, does the sound and music very well. I think that's what makes the movie very creepy. Um, that we've got like a scene where she like runs down to the wine cellar and you're mm-hmm. like, is something going to jump out? And like nothing bad happens, but it's just this, this sense of like being heightened alert, heightened awareness because you know something's going to happen. And unfortunately it does. Unfortunately it does. And I think you're right, Dr. Fran, with this movie, they do play with sound very well. There are a lot of very quiet scenes where all of a sudden just like a creepy, creepy music, creepy sounds kind of creep in. Um, And maybe in this scene where she's in the cellar, it's a little bit foreboding because something bad is about to happen. So the couple, Dr. Crow and his wife, make their way upstairs to continue their celebration. Um, And that's when they realize that something (laughs) is amiss. Um, The window has been broken. The the phone is like knocked over and this is back before cell phones when we had like landlines that actually had wires some of you may not be familiar with this but if you watch the movie you'll see what i mean um and they pick up the they notice that this phone is off the hook and kind of making a noise very shortly after dr crow realizes that someone has broken into their room and is in the bathroom you know derobed kind of down just to their underwear um standing very ominously in the in their bathroom of the bedroom this is 47 locust street You've broken a window and entered a private residence. You don't know so many things. Yeah, and this is someone who's very clearly agitated. He's yes. very upset. He's kind of mumbling to himself. Mm-hmm. They are making the assumption that maybe he's trying to get drugs or break in for money or things like that. And then we slowly start to realize he is a former patient of Dr. Crow's. Do I know you? <laughs> don't you know me, hero? <laughs> don't you even remember your own patients? He's really frustrated because Dr. Crow doesn't seem to remember him. And finally, Dr. Crow kind of puts it together. Um, You can imagine, like, being in this situation where someone's like, don't you remember me? You don't know who I am. And you're, like, racking your brain. I mean, I'm guessing he's seen so many patients over the years. And this is someone I think is, like, 10 years later that he had seen him. So he's an adult. And you're trying to remember, okay, like, okay, all the patients I've seen, who could this possibly be? What would they look like now? Yeah. <laughs> and he finally kind of clicks of, like, who it probably is. Vincent. Vincent Gray. <gasps> I do remember you. And he right away launches into trying to, like, de-escalate the scene after, you know, it does start off very tense. And he's trying to say, like, oh, you know, I do remember who you are now. Um, He starts to kind of mention some of the good qualities he remembers about this individual when they were a child. He says, you know, oh, you were very quiet and smart and you were so compassionate. Um, But the individual who we learn, his name is Vincent. 
really, you know, kind of keep saying something about like, well, do you know why you're afraid when you're alone? And people had called him a freak as he was growing up. And really that doctor, the main thing he's upset about is that Dr. Crow did not help him as he had promised. And so this scene is actually very jarring, very upsetting, but it does end with Vincent saying that Dr. Crow failed him. He then goes on to shoot, shoot Dr. Crow and then shoot himself. And that's where the scene kind of fades to black and ends. Vincent, I'm sorry if I was if I didn't help you. But if you just let me try, you just give me a chance. Yeah, and definitely a very hard to watch scene for a lot yes. of reasons. Um, and just thinking about like how much distress this person is in. And again, like as a psychologist to have someone come back and say like, you failed me, like you didn't help me, like that's so heartbreaking. It would be so hard to like sit with and hear and then to have this happen in front of you, like in your home. Um, so there's like so much trauma and like difficulty with this scene and like the aftermath of it very traumatic and very heartbreaking i think like you mentioned dr fran this individual you know vincent coming to meet with the psychologist that he met with 10 years ago that must have been a really salient or a really like important moment in his life when maybe he thought that dr crow would be the person to help him and unfortunately he went on to have continued difficulties and then comes back you know to in a kind of it's seemingly like blaming or at least attributing some of that difficulty and distress to dr crow so a very difficult scene and a very sad ending um, um, to that scene. Yeah, absolutely. And so the next thing we see in the film is that we flash forward to the next fall um, after the shooting has happened. And the first introduction we have to a new character, Cole, who seems to be Dr. Crow's new patient. Um, and they first interact, which is kind of in a bizarre way. He's like <laughs> sitting on a bench across from Cole's house and taking has his like notes out, which again, like, we're back in the 90s, so they don't have, like, electronic records. It's all, like, handwritten, like, in a journal of, like, all of his notes on the patient and things like that. But I just thought that was kind of bizarre. Like, is he following him? That's like, true. he knows where he lives and he's, like, is he stalking him? Like, that's not something that would normally happen, I don't think. No, not very normal. You're right. It's like, why doesn't he go to the house and introduce himself? Instead, he continues to, like, follow after this, like, you know, his new patient who he's never met who's a nine-year-old boy, and he's just, like, following him down the street. The boy obviously realizes he's being followed and seems very frightened. Um, at this point, we're really going to kind of talk a little bit about Cole, and then we'll talk a little bit about Dr. Crow's impressions or, like, his thoughts on Cole. And we're also going to cover the therapy sessions that we see between Dr. Crow and Cole. So kind of starting off, like Dr. Fran mentioned, in a bizarre way, right away we see that Dr. Crow has notes on Cole. Um, and you know, very convenient for us viewers. There are certain terms that have been circled and highlighted. Um, but in his notes about Cole, we learn he's a his name is Cole Sear. He's a nine-year-old boy. Um, and then he is described as socially isolated, having a possible mood disorder, experiencing acute anxiety, and having divorced parents. Um, so a lot of information up front about our 
new character Cole here. Yeah, and I, something I wanted to highlight here when we talk about the word mood disorder, um, it's not used quite as often. I think it was used more in this time period, but generally when we're saying mood disorder, it's an umbrella term for disorders that might affect a person's emotional state. So the most common within this category would be like depression or bipolar disorder, which we've talked about both of those on the podcast before. But there's something going on with this, this person's mood that Dr. Crow is concerned about or wanting to learn more about. And when we say acute anxiety, essentially that means like more imminent or more um, prominent anxiety that's happening right now. Yes. Um, so one of the first things that we also learned is that his parents are divorced. Um, and so when Cole is a nine-year-old boy, throughout the movie, we don't hear too much about Cole's father or the circumstances of the divorce. But there are a couple like kind of kernels of information that we gather so it seems like cole's father did leave like somewhat suddenly um and that now there is no communication with dad so it doesn't seem like cole connects with dad or mom connects with dad um and there are a couple of tokens that cole has i think including like a broken watch and like glasses without lenses that he has kept from his father um and he even mentions at one point like well his dad didn't give them to him dad just like left them behind and he has kind of like held on to them as like you know, probably tokens that remind him of his dad. Um, so we really don't know a lot about that relationship other than that there seems to have been some increased difficulty perhaps occurring like after dad did leave and after the parents' divorce or separation. Yeah, and you could understand why Cole might be having a difficult time adjusting. You know, what we know from the research is that children who have been in situations where their parents have been divorced are at higher risk for adjustment yes. difficulties. And that can look different for different kids. And we know there's a lot of protective factors, like if parents are able to maintain like a cordial relationship and if the child's able to see both parents pretty regularly and maintain a good relationship, those can be protective factors. But like Dr. Sam alluded to, in this situation, unfortunately, Cole's father seems to be completely out of the picture now. And so he's almost coping with divorce and like the loss or like grief of not having his father figure there anymore. And he seems like they were potentially close or at least he admired him or looked up to him that he's keeping these tokens that are important to him that remind him of his dad. Very true. It seems like a loss, a potential sudden loss and one he still is grieving. And as you mentioned, Dr. Fran, children, um, especially around Cole's age, who come from parents that are divorced and maybe don't have some more of those protective factors, may experience more mental health concerns or than those um, that might have more protective factors. And those can include what we call externalizing problems. And so when we say externalizing problems, those are things you can almost think about it as things you can see more outwardly. So kind of behavior, if someone is acting more upset or impulsive, um, getting in trouble, yelling, things like that would be what we might think of as an externalizing problem. Um, and these do seem to occur more often in children of divorced parents than those from two-parent families. And we also might see um, more conflict with peers in a child who has who has parents who are divorced. We do see that Cole has difficulties with peers, but these seem to be more related to being bullied. Um, he's not, you know, necessarily being aggressive or unkind to peers. It's more that they kind of are targeting and bullying him for being different. Um, but he definitely has some peer difficulties that we'll talk a little bit more about as well in a second. Yeah, and so right off the bat, kind of that those impressions that we have from Dr. Crow's notes kind of fit given the context that Cole is in, right? There's been this recent 
divorce, uh, like loss of his father figure. And so we can understand how there might be some social isolation or some mood difficulties, some anxiety. Again, these are things that can be common for some children after a divorce or separation or a parental loss like that. We also know that there is a big impact also based on the parent that is stays with the child. If it becomes kind of a single parent situation that that parent's coping can have a huge impact on the child. And we do see that Cole and his mom seem to have a pretty good relationship, but there's some strain there. She's a single parent. She's working multiple jobs. There's maybe some financial strain. Um, and then Cole is dealing with some mental health difficulties that she's stressed about because she feels bad and feels guilty and wants to protect him and, you know, wants him to be okay. She seems to also be potentially struggling with her own like grief and loss, you know, including the relationship with Cole's dad. And then there's mentions of her mother who had passed away. We, we're not sure how recently either, but it seems like a relationship that she also had that was close that she further lost. And so as Dr. Fran mentioned, I, I think Cole's mom in this movie, we won't talk too much about her today, but we really, it seems like she really is trying her best. She's a warm mm -hmm. and loving, you know, mother. She tries to be there for Cole. She takes him, you know, when he finally does get invited to a um, another boy's birthday party she takes him she calls parents when she thinks he's being bullied she tries to stand up for him and be there but then yeah. also she misses things like later on in the movie she misses his school play because she is working multiple jobs and she does sometimes seem you know like overwhelmed understandably um but because of this cole also alludes at points of not wanting to share things with mom or even wanting to talk to mom about his feelings about what he's experiencing because he doesn't want to further burden her he's trying to be tough for her and he's trying to protect his mom mm -hmm. um so that leads to some communication difficulties between the two of them and his mom really struggles to kind of understand him and he really struggles to be able to open up to her yeah and i think that sets it up well that Dr. Crow comes in as is potentially this outside person that maybe Cole can feel comfortable talking to. However, that's not really how it initially starts off. Cole is not no. really open <laughs> and upfront with him from the beginning, and it takes some time to build rapport. So perhaps we can shift a little bit into Dr. Crow and Cole's relationship and how they start working together and building that relationship or that rapport. <laughs> Well, Dr. Fran and I would not advise potentially kind of like stalking or creeping on your patient as the first way to meet them, especially when they're nine years old. So, you know, it doesn't start off great. We kind of mentioned that in the beginning. Um, and Cole mentions that he's being followed by this strange man he doesn't know and runs into a church. And so their first meeting, Dr. Crow follows him into the church and he kind of sees he's playing a lot of times with like these little figurines and he's even like speaking in Latin to the figurines. Um, and understandably the first interaction that we see like Cole seems to be a little he he definitely comes across in the film as like uneasy uncomfortable and maybe even afraid like who are you mm -hmm. why are you approaching me um and then Dr. Fran you had mentioned like why is he following him this way and he he makes a comment about like sorry that I missed our meeting my name is Dr. Malcolm Crow we were supposed to meet today but I missed our appointment sorry I'm going to see you again, right? If that's okay with you. What I find two things to be interesting about that. It's like, I don't think it's a proper thing to do if you miss a session with a patient to then go out and find them <laughs> and introduce yourself. No. <laughs> yeah, one. And then two, you know, when you ask a child a question, especially a question where you're giving them a choice, you have to actually grant them you know, the ability to make that choice. And so he asked, like, I'd like to come and see you again and talk to you again, like, if that's okay with you. Cole actually never responds, and yet he still comes and, like, you know, <laughs> continues to be a presence. So if you're going to ask Cole that question, you have to really be able to, like, you know, be open to taking his response. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. And some other information we get during this scene is that Dr. Crow notices some scratches or some cut marks potentially on his wrist. So there's some concerns either maybe about self-harm or abuse, like kind of unsure what's going on there. Um, and Cole has a, there's a part of the scene where he asks if he's a good doctor. Um, and there's this kind of interesting moment where Dr. Crow says he used to be. Are you a good doctor? Well, I used to be. I won an award once from the mayor. Had an expensive frame. Um, so you can you can tell that like whatever's happened over the last year since the you know shooting incident, he is maybe not feeling a hundred percent like his you know and so but something about this relationship with Cole has really sparked his interest, and he really wants to work with him and kind of figure out and try to help him. Another thing I don't think is the most appropriate response to give a child, like if they ask you, you're a good doc, like if you're meeting with a child for the first time and they ask, are you a good doctor? Probably not best practice to be like, nope, not anymore, but I'm your doctor. <laughs> I'm all you got, kid. Sorry. <laughs> but we're definitely starting to get like an inclination, you know, that there's something more to it for Dr. Crow, right? Like he's really drawn to this kid, wants to help this kid. So then they have an, an actual like maybe first like more proper session that doesn't take place after Dr. Crow has followed Cole in Cole's home. Let's maybe listen to a little bit of this scene um, and then we can kind of dive into what we think about how it goes. Want to sit? Want to play a game? It's a mind reading game. Here's how it works. I read your mind. If what I say is right, you take one step towards the chair. If what I say is wrong, you take one step back towards the doorway. If you reach the chair, you sit down. If you reach the door, you can go. Want to play? Okay. When your mother and father were first divorced, your mom went to see a doctor like me, and he didn't help her. So you think I'm not going to be able to help you. You're worried that she said she told him things. Things she couldn't tell anyone else. Secrets. You have a secret, but you don't want to tell me. What you can't see in this scene is every time Dr. Crow asks one of those questions, at least the ones we heard over the clip, Cole is taking a step forward. So I think this is a really interesting approach, you know, that he takes with Cole. He knows their first time meeting in the church, there was like some, you know, tension and awkwardness, understandably. He's trying to break the ice. He's trying to gain some trust with Cole um, and make Cole feel a bit more comfortable. So the things I do like, I like that he framed it as a game. Um, mm -hmm. I think, interestingly, he kind of plays into that trope of, like, psychologists being able to read your mind, right? Because, like, probably kids already think that. And then he's like, let me read your mind. And he puts his hands to his temple and he acts like he's, like, trying really hard to read Cole's mind. So I thought that was kind of funny. Um, there are also a couple of risks in this approach, you know, because you're just meeting this kid for the first time. Um, one of the questions I have in general about this movie is how is Dr. Crow getting all this information? I mean, when we get to the spoiler, I'm always like, well, how does he know all of this about mm -hmm. Cole, that he has all these notes and this information about mom? But anyway, you know, he's taking a risk because he's having to assume that he knows the way that Cole will respond to some of these questions. And if you right. listen further, it 
that actually does backfire because he starts to get the questions wrong, his impressions. Um, and also, again, one of the risks I'm talking about is he gives him the choice. So, like, if you get to the door, you can leave. And so that's a risk because if Cole makes it to the door, he has to respect that and let him leave because he, you know, Cole, in a way, I guess, would have won that game. I don't know who's the winner, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I think it could still be a net positive. So as long as they've yeah. built some rapport, even if he gets some wrong, which actually he does get quite a few wrong yeah. after this and then gets to the point where Cole does end the session and they wrap up. Mm-hmm. But they still keep seeing each other. So clearly he's done enough in this scene to build enough of a relationship or trust that Cole's intrigued, at least. Like, he's open to talking again, even if Mm -hmm. Dr. Crow, some of Dr. Crow's guesses or mind reading are not very accurate. Very true. You know, Cole actually ends the session, as you just mentioned, Dr. Fran, by saying, can you guess what I'm thinking now? And Dr. Crow says um, that he can't. And Cole says, I'm thinking that you're nice but you can't help me. Mm-hmm. So it does seem like Dr. Crow won him over in the sense that he, you know, is maybe starting to trust him, does see him, does see him as a nice figure, might still talk to him, but that he hasn't truly won over his trust in thinking that the work that they do together can help Cole. Um, and at this point, we still really don't know other than, you know, maybe the notes that he has gotten from about Cole previously. We still don't really know like what Cole's concerns are, what his goals are. We don't have the whole picture of what's going on. But whatever that is, Cole doesn't think Dr. Crow is the one to help him figure it out. I do think even though Dr. Crow gets a few things wrong, we do end up learning more about Cole. He learns more about yes. Cole because Cole's having to correct him when he's wrong. So I don't know if that's mm-hmm. intentional, but he says makes a comment about like, you do well in school, you haven't really gotten in trouble, which is a guess he's making. And Cole comes back and says, actually, I started doing these drawings and they upset my mom and upset my teacher because they were violent or kind of gory. Um, and there's this really sad part of this clip where Cole talks about how he's learned to basically adapt to expectations of what others want him to be drawing, like rainbows and dogs and these happy content areas because he doesn't want to upset his mom. He doesn't want to get called to the teacher's office. So he's ended up kind of pushing down and hiding some of these difficult things that he's dealing with because he doesn't want to upset other people. I think that's a great point. Around this time in the movie, we also start to get some clues of things that might be going on with Cole. And a lot of them do have to do with like what you're mentioning, that morbid content. So I think when he talks about that picture, he literally describes it as like, I drew a picture of a man who was hurt by another man with a screwdriver in his neck. So, you know, kind of like showing maybe that he had seen some murderous scene and Dr. Crow asked him like, oh, did you see that? We also learn later that he had tried a technique where they told him to just go ahead and do like free association writing. So putting a pencil down and writing different like words that without thinking about it. Um, And mom finds this that he's written and he's written also some disturbing content there. At one point, he gets in a big blow up with a teacher because he mentions the teacher asks, um, I think the teacher asked the kids, like, do you guys know what the school used to be before it was a school? And he says, like, a courthouse. Um, But Cole corrects him and says, no, actually, like, they used to hang people here. Like, people used to die here. And and then he goes on to reveal that he knows some information about the teacher that's really interesting because it's about the teacher's youth. So little by little, we're getting some clues that there is some, you know, dark content matter, something, you know, nefarious or scary kind of going around around Cole. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's a scene where they're kind of doing a session maybe, but they're walking around the neighborhood and they're talking about how Cole, again, like doesn't feel comfortable telling his mom things because he doesn't want to scare her. And he makes a comment about, I don't want her to look at me like everyone else does. I don't want her to think I'm a freak. And that's kind of been a theme and interestingly, a connecting, a connecting theme between Cole 
and Dr. Crow's uh, original patient that we saw in the first scene, that there's this theme of people thinking that they're freaks or thinking negative things about them. And so again, like it makes total sense that Cole wants to hide that part of himself from his mom or from other people because he doesn't want people to think negatively or think differently about him because I think he recognizes the content, the morbid thinking, the scary thoughts he's having are not thoughts that everyone else is having. That's true. And he's gotten feedback, right? Like you mentioned. One of the things I will say, if I were to have a patient like Cole, he seems to be a very insightful child. And what I mean when I say insightful Mm -hmm. is that he does have a lot, you know, he's in tune with the thoughts and feelings that he has. Um, He also seems to be a very bright kid. You know, like he got in trouble for drawing the dark, you know, picture. And so now, unfortunately, he's learned like, well, I have to keep this in. Like, I've tried to express myself like with words, art, and writing and every time I get in trouble or every time people think it's like a bad thing so now I'm just like learning to kind of present what others won't you know be disturbed by Um, but he's definitely like in tune and one of the worst parts about that is like socially you know it's not only his peers that call him a freak like in that scene I mentioned earlier the teacher ends it by just saying like shut up Mm -hmm. you freak you know so he's called this word over and over again Um, and one of the only really positive stable relationships he does have is with his mom and so he doesn't want her to think about him in that negative way Um, and we definitely see that as being a theme and something that you know Cole is worried about I think shortly after we see another session back in Cole's house and this is like a little bit you know there's one larger breakthrough that we're leading up to but I do feel like there's a breakthrough in this scene because Dr. Crow asked Cole like what he would like like he wants him to think about you know like in um Uh, If you could change anything about your life or you want something to be different, kind of asking him, like, what do you want out of therapy? Like, what is your goal? Um, And let's actually listen really quickly to what Cole says. Something I want. If you could change something in your life, anything at all, what would it be? Instead of something I want, can it be something I don't want? Okay. I don't want to be scared anymore. I do appreciate that Cole is at least trusting Dr. Crow enough to open up and say, like, this is what I would like. I don't want to be scared anymore. And we know that Cole is a pretty anxious kid. And we've kind of learned throughout the course of getting to know him so far that there's, you know, these stressful events that he's been through, that he's been bullied, that there's been some scary things that have happened to him in the context of the bullying and that he's just on edge and anxious a lot. Um, And just a little plug there that the question that Dr. Mm -hmm. Crow asks him, like, if you could change anything in your life, what would it be? Is actually a therapy technique called the miracle question of kind of like, if you could wave a wand and make everything better, like, what would it be? And that would, that sometimes gives us some insight into like, what's at the core? What is like really the distressing event that's going on that we want to focus and target. And so for Cole, that's the anxiety. That's the being the being scared all the time. We don't really know 100% yet why mm-hmm. he's scared, but we'll learn very soon. And I think that is a great technique, and especially here with Cole, because Cole, it does allow Cole, he says something like, oh, can it, instead of being something like I want, can it be something I don't want? And so, you know, we're mm-hmm. getting some insight into the way he feels about that. He does say he doesn't want to be scared. So we, you know, you would hope that Dr. Crow is then easily able to follow up and say like okay that is a great goal like you don't want to feel as scared what are some of the things that scare you right and that could lead to maybe the reveal or at least you know if cole was our patient dr fran like getting more information about the things that cause him anxiety or cause him to feel afraid and then working towards being able to better cope with those feelings or manage that anxiety However, another kind of scary, distressing situation happens with Cole. He goes to a little boy's birthday party, I believe we mentioned briefly earlier, and two children decide to bully Cole, and they lock him into, like, a little creepy, like, attic 
crawl space kind of situation, um, which Cole was initially led there because he was hearing noises. And so the kids then lock him in there. Um, it's not 100% clear what happens, but it appears that Cole ends up passing out and he finds himself in the hospital. Um, so while he's in the hospital, Dr. Crow comes to visit him. You think I'm sad? What makes you think that? Your eyes told me. I'm not supposed to talk about stuff like that. Once upon a time, there was this person named Malcolm. He worked with children. He loved it. He loved it more than anything else. And then one night, he found out that he made a mistake with one of them. He couldn't help that one. And he can't stop thinking about it. He can't forget. Ever since then, things have been different. He's not the same person that he used to be. And his wife doesn't like the person that he's become. They barely speak anymore. They're like strangers. And then one day, Malcolm meets this wonderful little boy. Really cool little boy. Reminds him a lot of the other one. And Malcolm decides to try and help this new boy. Because he feels that if he can help this new boy, be like helping that other one too. How does this story end? I don't know. Dr. Fran and I have a lot of thoughts about this clip, I believe. I'll start off by saying that that's a tremendous amount of pressure and tremendous amount of information to unload on a nine-year-old. Yeah, we've talked about self-disclosure in the past and that it can be used appropriately to help build a relationship Mm -hmm. with a client or help be more human. But it does not seem like he's giving this information to Cole to help Cole. It's very self-serving. And I do appreciate that Dr. Crow is developing some insight into his own you know, transference and like, you know, why is Cole so important to him? Like he's building that insight, which I think is helpful, but not in an interaction with a nine-year-old client or any client for that matter. No, I I agree completely. It is very self-serving. You know, this nine-year-old's in the hospital sharing about your wife not understanding or liking you is not an appropriate way to go about that. Um, You know, I like the way he gives Cole compliments, you know, calling him like a smart and wonderful boy. I think that's really positive. But then linking it back to this other quote-unquote one, as he calls Vincent, you know, this other patient that he couldn't help. And now, like, you remind me a lot of this patient and so maybe if I can help you, it'll be like I helped him. That's where I'm getting at with like this pressure of like, well, my success mm-hmm. in like helping you feel better is really important because I failed this other child. And so I need to help you to make everything better. Um, it's just, you know, very inappropriate, very self-serving. I think in this scene, Cole also shows a lot of nice insight again. He kind of mentions to Dr. Crow, like, you know, Dr. Crow, I, you're supposed to be helping me, but you look really sad. And like, what's going on with you? Which I think is an impro- appropriate question coming from a nine-year-old. I do not think Dr. Crow answered it appropriately. <laughs> right. Yeah. Disclosing a lot and unloading a lot on this nine-year-old. And again, that's not the type of relationship they have. This is not like his friend or <laughs> his own therapist. This is one of his patients that he's trying to help. Yeah. I will say, like, of course, for the purposes of the movie, what this does is yes. it I think gives Cole a better sense and insight into what's going on with Dr. Mm -hmm. Crow. And so then he feels more comfortable sharing what's going on with him. And again, when used properly, self-disclosure can help clients feel more comfortable. Like if you're able to share a little bit of yourself, 
then the client might feel more comfortable sharing a little bit of themselves. But we don't want it to be this kind of more self-serving, like kind of unloading, processing like these deep, difficult things, because that's taking away from the purpose of the session and the relationship, which is to help Cole. Also, I think the other purpose of this is that it's showing us, right, the viewer, that yeah, the reason why Dr. Crow is so kind of fixated on helping Cole, you know, even to the detriment of his own marriage, right? He's just like constantly consumed with helping Cole is because it reminds him a lot of Vincent. It reminds him a lot of, you know, that perceived failure that he has. Um, and so... Cole is really reminding him of Vincent and he doesn't want to fail Cole. He doesn't want to fail another child. So I think it's also giving us some glimpse into Dr. Crow's feelings and thoughts and also just like the importance of this relationship. So I think as a mechanism in the movie, yeah, it does that. And it does help, like you mentioned, Dr. Fran with like Cole feeling like, okay, I can also share a little bit more with Dr. Crow and I better understand Dr. Crow. Um, You know, if Dr. Crow were a real child psychologist, there are ways he could go about that much more differently. Like he could say like, oh, you think I look sad? You know, maybe I do feel sad sometimes. Or, you know, I am a little bit sad that you were hurt today and you're in the hospital. Like there are different ways that you can frame Mm -hmm. that that show your compassion and care and your thoughts and feelings that would be more appropriate for this nine-year-old. Yeah. Well, let's hear how this helps Cole open up a little bit and what he finally reveals his secret is. Dun, dun, dun. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. In your dreams? While you're awake? Did people like in graves and coffins? Walking around like regular people. They don't see each other. They only see what they want to see. They don't know they're dead. How often do you see them? This is probably the most famous line from this movie, I See Dead People. This scene is also so sad. Like, Cole is finally expressing his secret, something that he's, like, been really scared to share with anyone because he doesn't want people to think about him differently. And he's just so scared in explaining, like, this is what happens. And he asks Dr. Crow to stay with him as he falls asleep because he's just terrified because he sees these ghosts all the time. And this would be terrifying for anyone. Imagine a nine-year-old child. And we get a glimpse in the movie of the types of dead people he sees. These are people who have had, you know, suffered horrendous fates, you know, gruesome ends. Like, uh, he has seen people who have um, died by harming themselves, accidental gunshot wounds, um, you know, being poisoned. And he sees the ghosts and dead people, like, as they present after their death. So it is very scary. And he says he sees them all the time and everywhere. So I think if you like take a second and pause, like if someone is seeing dead people, seeing them all the time and everywhere, just how truly terrifying that would be. The other thing I really like that Dr. Crow does in this scene is that he remains very calm and collected, right? So he says, I see dead people. And he asks a lot of clarifying questions. He's like, okay, Mm -hmm. like, 
thought about as that, like when you're asleep and he's like, okay, no. Um, mm-hmm. you know, he asks a lot of questions to try to get more information. And even though there's like the suspenseful music building on the outside, what he's trying to do is remain calm so that he doesn't fulfill this assumption that Cole has that everyone's going to think he's a freak or that he's making this up or that something's wrong with him. Um, And he just tries to stay very calm and collected, which I think is really helpful in this scene because you can imagine if he responded differently, that could have gone very wrong and caused Cole to like really close off and not want to tell anyone ever again. Yeah, very true. He remains calm and also just non-judgmental. He doesn't react. And I will say, I do think that Mm -hmm. this is true to how a child psychologist would respond. When you hear distressing information, most of the time, not always, of course, there are different situations, but a lot of the time, it can be best to just remain very neutral and collect more information. So if someone tells you, um, and we're we're about to dive into like what Dr. Crow might be thinking and where he's going with this. But if you, you know, are working with a nine-year-old boy and they say they're seeing dead people, you want to understand like when is this happening? Where is this happening? What, you know, like you're just wanting to get as many details as you can to assess like what the situation is. Um, I think mm-hmm. the last part of this clip we'll listen to briefly is Dr. Crow shares exactly what his thoughts are you know a lot of times you'll hear dr fran and i mention like impressions so his overall thoughts about what he thinks is going on with cole cole his pathology is more severe than initially assessed he's suffering from visual hallucinations paranoia some kind of school-age schizophrenia medication Hospitalization may be required. And I'm not helping him. So understandably, Dr. Crow's impressions are that Cole is experiencing hallucinations um, of ghosts that he might be seeing, that he may be dealing with schizophrenia, which we'll get through get to in a second. Um, but kind of overall what he's interpreting is potentially that he's dealing with some kind of psychosis. Uh, And it's important to note, like this is really, really rare for a kid of this age. Mm -hmm. Um, Typically when we start to see psychotic symptoms like hallucinations or delusions, um, which is more broadly when we think about psychosis, that's this like mental state defined by impaired thinking or emotions, losing contact with reality. So that could be through hallucinations, like seeing or hearing things that aren't there or delusions, believing things that aren't true. Typically, those things don't manifest till quite a bit later in adolescence or early adulthood or even later. So the fact that Cole is potentially experiencing some of these at age nine is pretty concerning. Definitely concerning. I will make a small minor plug. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about delusions, definitely check out one of our spooky sessions from last year on Shutter Island. We dive into delusions much more in depth. Um, We are going to talk briefly about hallucinations and schizophrenia here. There will be other instances where we will dive more deeply into schizophrenia, um, but just kind of as a primer, we do have a session already where we talk a lot about delusions and delusional disorder. And even though we mentioned that childhood psychotic symptoms or schizophrenia is very rare, it does happen sometimes. And so there is kind of an additional category of schizophrenia, not formally, but kind of known among the research and the literature of more like childhood presenting schizophrenia of some that comes out a lot sooner than is typical, which again, usually 
usually schizophrenia doesn't emerge until adolescence or emerging adulthood. And when we say schizophrenia, we will refer to the DSM-5 as we often do for the criteria. So again, we're not going to do a deep dive into this, but we do want to give you like a sense. So when we're talking about Cole and particular uh, symptoms, you know what we mean. So in order to diagnose someone with schizophrenia, they have to have two or more of the following symptoms that have been occurring for at least a month um, and very significant portions of the time. So the first one would be delusions, as we mentioned, so believing things that aren't true. Um, I guess a case could be made regarding Cole that he has a delusion um, about, you know, dead people, but I do think that this falls more specifically into the category of the num- of the second symptom, which are hallucinations, so seeing things that aren't there. It's not that he's delusional, like having a real, like, complex belief system about ghosts and how, you know, how they're impacting or uh, impacting his life or things that they're doing. It's more that he's like actually seeing these ghosts. So I think it kind of falls more into hallucinations. Uh, Dr. Fran, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's tricky because it's definitely overlapping. So I think someone could make the argument that for either he has developed this delusional belief that ghosts are real and that he's the only one that can see them and Mm -hmm. they're trying to talk to him, things like that. So I think you probably could extend that argument. But definitely falls more in that hallucination, like for sure in that hallucination category. Yeah, for sure in that one. I agree with that. The third symptom would be disorganized speech. So this is like in a manner, you know, talking kind of tangentially or like where words are kind of out of order, it would seem. We do not see this with Cole. Um, He also does not have very disorganized or catatonic, you know, like, you know, moving slow or not moving at all type behavior, which is the fourth one. And then the fifth one would be what we call negative symptoms. Negative symptoms can be kind of tricky to understand, but what these really are, the way you can think about negative symptoms is that a person has an absence of things that we might see in most people. So, you know, having facial expressions or an emotional response or interest in things in their world, that's typical of most people. Negative symptoms would be the lack of that. And so I don't believe Cole meets that because we do see him have a a wide variety of expressions. He's crying, he's emoting, he's scared. He has a very strong emotional response to his experiences. So... You know, at least given this criteria thus far, it would seem like he may have one or two, you know, the delusions or the hallucinations, um, but not any of the negative symptoms, not any of those other symptoms. Yeah. And again, it's very, very rare. So it's called early onset schizophrenia if it starts before age 18. And so the fact that he's under 13, what research tells us is that it's extremely rare for a child under the age of 13 to start exhibiting these symptoms within the context of schizophrenia. There are other diagnoses that can have psychotic features or can have hallucinations or delusions alongside them. Um, so those might actually be a better fit for Cole based on what we know about him. So like major depressive disorder, um, we did talk about his low mood and like social isolation um, and hallucinations can occur in the context of pretty severe major depressive symptoms. We've also talked about Cole going through significant changes. So there can be things like we've talked about in the past, like an adjustment disorder or even post-traumatic stress disorder, given, you know, we don't know everything about his past and the potential trauma associated with the relationship or loss of his father or things that might have happened related to that. So someone can also have PTSD with psychotic features. Dr. Fran and I, when chatting about Cole, thought that one of these, more of like a PTSD or the major depressive disorder with those psychotic features would be a better fit for him related to the fact that really the main kind of symptom or feature associated with the psychosis are those hallucinations for the most part, given his young age, and also just given the context and history of everything else he's been through. Absolutely. So without any additional context so far, just based on what we know about Cole at this point, um, this is some 
potential diagnostic impressions that we might have about him. However, we pretty quickly learned that these are not delusions or hallucinations, but that he (laughs) actually is seeing ghosts that are real and that are interacting with him and are pretty scary for him. Yes, and you know, given that this is a movie, that's what makes it so tricky. We can do our best to try to diagnose or just give some of those impressions, but of course we don't have the full history. And as we learn, you know, Cole is able to interact and solve crimes with these ghosts. So they are in fact real. He is seeing these dead people. I do also want to mention just briefly something that we didn't chat about, but also when considering things like delusions and hallucinations, one should also be really um, cognizant and be sure to consider cultural factors Mm -hmm. because in different cultures, you know, also related to someone's like spiritual beliefs, religious beliefs, there can be some association with people, you know, seeing loved ones that have passed away or other spiritually related contexts. So I think that that's another important piece. We do, what made me think of that also in terms of Cole, and we should think about that with all of our patients and people that we work with but with Cole specifically there does seem to be a really strong tie to his like Catholic religion as well Mm -hmm. we see him with a lot of like religious figures and going to the church so just something I wanted us to be cognizant of too yeah absolutely well and in this case it's not that he's out of touch with reality it's that he's very in touch with reality so he would not you know meet criteria for hallucinations or delusions in the traditional sense because it's real it's happening yeah they're there Very true. And so so after he learns this about Cole, they have another session yet again. He goes like to another like kind of location and he's meeting with Cole at school. Um, I think that this scene is a little bit inappropriate because he goes to watch Cole's school play. And then after the play, just kind of starts conducting therapy with him like out or out in the open in a hallway. So not the most appropriate uh, avenue for therapy. Um, and while they're talking, Cole becomes visibly visibly distressed and he says, you know, that he can see, you know, dead people in that moment or that he's experiencing something related to that. Um, Dr. Crow, of course, looks and asks Cole, like, are you sure they're there? Because I don't see anything. Um, So I think that this is an interesting scene where, like you're mentioning, Dr. Fran, Dr. Crow has finally learned the secret and then they're together and he's finally seeing dead people. um, But Dr. Crow is unable to see them. So he, you know, in his mind is now deciding that this is a hallucination, right? Something that isn't there to be perceived by all. I don't see anything. Are you sure they're there? Cole. Please make them leave. I'm working on it. Yeah, and a combination between what's been going on in his impressions of Cole, plus simultaneously, Dr. Crow is having difficulties in his marriage. So his wife seems very distant. She's barely interacting with him. She's kind of ignoring him. He misses their anniversary because he's wrapped up in his relationship with Cole. And so he ends up trying to wrap up and terminate his therapeutic relationship with Cole. And unfortunately, in a not very tactful way. I can't be your doctor anymore. I haven't paid enough attention to my family. Bad things happen when you do that. Do you understand? I'm going to transfer you. I know two psychologists. Don't fail me. Don't give up. You're the only one who can help me. I know it. I can't help you. Someone else can help you. Believe me, right? Dr. Crow, you believe my secret, right? I don't know how to answer that, Cole. How can you help me if you don't believe me? 
listening back to this scene just makes me angry all over again. There were, you know, this is a very sad scene, but it also makes me feel like feel very upset. There's a couple of things to dive into here. So it's not a hundred percent inappropriate for Dr. Crow to, you know, finish seeing Cole if he does feel like there are things in his life that are impeding his ability, you know, to do therapy. That's actually a good thing to do. Like if you have your own mental health concerns or there's some exacerbating circumstances that are impacting your work, you're not able to best service those you're working with. Okay, that can be appropriate. What I don't like is the way he did it. Like it mm-hmm. seems very sudden and it's like yeah. this is just the last session, you know, there's no like prep or leading up to that if that could be, you know, an appropriate avenue to take. Um, and he also just says like, I can't be your doctor anymore. Like I need to focus on my own problems. Like good luck out there, kid. And <laughs> it's just like so heartbreaking that Cole like basically then starts to beg. Like he says like, don't fail me. Like don't give up. Yeah. You know, I didn't think you could help me and now I think you're the only one that can. Um, and I love again how insightful Cole is when he says like, well, how can you help me if you don't even believe me? It's like, right, right on kid. <laughs> right. Well, and you know, there's other ways he could have responded to this when Cole asked him if he believed him. He's like, I don't know how to answer that. Ugh. Like that kind of implies that he doesn't believe him. Of course. Um, but there are other ways you could like kind of get around. Like maybe he doesn't believe that there are ghosts, but I think what you can say and this is like, I believe that like you see these ghosts and that it's very scary for you. And I, you know, I believe that like your experience is as is your reality, right? A hundred percent. Even if Dr. Crow does not believe that there are dead people that this child is interacting with, you know, if Cole is seeing dead people, that is his reality. And if he's reporting that to you, that he is seeing these things that they're very scary, I agree that Dr. Crow could have said, I do believe you. I believe that you're seeing these things and I believe that it's scary because that is... That is Cole's reality, right? So even though there are disturbances with his reality that Dr. Crow is quote-unquote trying to help him with, that is this child's reality. And so to say he didn't believe him, that part really also angered me. And I think that Cole was very right to be like, well, if you don't believe me and you're not going to support me, then you really are not the best person to help me moving forward. But just like a very sad scene for, for Cole. And, you know, luckily things do take a turn. So Dr. Crow ends up kind of doing some homework and actually figures out that Vincent, the patient that we had seen in the first scene, also had similar experiences of hearing and seeing dead people. And he's able to kind of pick up that this is real. And he hears like on a, you know, old video recording, like turns the volume up really high and hears voices. And then all of a sudden it clicks for him like, wait, Cole's not just having hallucinations or delusions like this is real and he is seeing dead people. Yes, which like, you know, I think is great for the movie. Also, it does not take you to have another patient who may or may not have been hallucinating to then realize like, oh, I should trust and listen to this patient. But I digress from that point. Um, (laughs) But given this newfound information, he does rush back to Cole and he kind of tells Cole like that he has an idea, you know, like what if... And and in this scene, he again finds Cole, like they don't have a scheduled session. So he just goes into the church and starts talking to him. And he says, I think, um, I think I know like what the dead people you see might want. I think I know that you might be able to help them, right? He says like, maybe they just want help and you can help them. Um, And Cole at first is hesitant. He's like, well, what if they don't want help? Or, you know, what if they're scary? 
And Dr. Crow says, like, well, let's just kind of try it out. And so there's, like, a whole part of the movie where Cole sees a young woman who um, has been murdered by her mother. Um, and we actually discovered through the scene that uh, her murder was related to um, fictitious disorder imposed on another when her mother was poisoning her. Um, we will not get into that here, but we do have other sessions also covering that if you want to check out our um, session on Sharp Objects. Um, and so, you know, he is able to kind of bring closure to that little girl when he reveals this big secret about her death. And so this is a turning point for Cole because he realizes like, oh, yes, the ghosts seem scary, but I can interact with them. I can figure out what they need and I can help them. And he really starts to gain like some confidence. He starts to smile more in the movie. He definitely feels more positive and less afraid, helping with that goal of being less scared. Yeah, there's a lot of closure there, and he's feeling less frightened by these ghosts because he realizes that actually they're people that are, you know, needing some mm -hmm. help with solving things. So he actually feels more helpful and more like contributing. Yeah. And so we realize that Dr. Crow has actually helped Cole mm -hmm. and that they're potentially able to start to, I would say, taper off their therapeutic relationship, but really yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit more abrupt. It's like, okay, you solved your problem. Like, time to wrap up yeah. our sessions. Yeah. Oh, now we know the dead people just want you to solve their murder. Good to go you know like clean our hands of this um we do see some of that growth though in other ways like in the movie like you're mentioning it should be more gradual but in the movie like all of a sudden cole is like the lead in the school's like rendition of sword in the stone and the kids are all celebrating him and he's like super happy he's it seems like he's getting along socially the teacher who was mean to him is the one who's like put him in the play so we're getting this nice resolution like oh he's getting along with teachers he's getting along with his peers he actually finally gets the confidence to share his secret with his mom mm -hmm. right so things are feeling good and let's kind of hear how uh him and dr crow decide to part ways I got an idea how you can talk to your wife. Wait till she's asleep. Then she'll listen to you and she won't even know it. Not gonna see you anymore, am I? I think we said everything we needed to say. Maybe it's time to say thanks to someone closer to you. Maybe we can pretend like we're gonna see each other tomorrow. Just for pretend. I'll see you tomorrow, Cole. So again, although that is a very touching scene, it's again like in the back of the play. Like it's not a yeah. formal session. They don't talk about like a formal termination plan. It seems very sudden. And Cole seems to be really sad to lose this relationship with Dr. Crow. He's already been through a lot of losses. He doesn't have a lot of people in his life. So I think in a typical setting, we may actually like start to taper down sessions. And maybe they don't see each other every week. Maybe they see each other once uh, every other week or once a month until Cole's kind of like more stable and things have been going well for a while. Maybe have like mom come in for a session and kind of loop yeah. her in on everything that's been going on. But generally, they end things on a good note and there's some closure to their relationship. Yes. And I will say, you know, when we say termination session, like what we mean by that is typically like, you know, the end session to lead up to that, you would usually review, review the skills and progress that you've made. You kind of make sure like to acknowledge like there might be other times that are still scary or stressful and then review the ways to manage or cope with that. And then also think about things to look out for. Like, oh, if you notice that you're seeing ghosts every day again, or if you notice you're more anxious, that would be a reason to come back to therapy, right? There's also an argument to be made that even though Cole is feeling more positively about his situation he still is seeing a lot of dead people so maybe treatment is still warranted right <laughs> so um, you know 
it's hard to know with this movie. Um, but I think this scene shows that Dr. Crow, at the very least, has established a really positive um, relationship with Cole. Cole values the work and the progress that they've made together. He doesn't want to say goodbye, but he also knows that he has to, right? He knows that it's coming to an end. A piece of that is because he realizes, like, okay, Dr. Crow has helped me, and then he has also now given Dr. Crow advice. He, Mm -hmm. you know, as we heard, he tells Dr. Crow, like, go ahead and talk to your wife and you know, also kind of an inappropriate to get love advice from a nine-year-old, but he tells <laughs> Dr. Crow, like, go and talk to your wife and share how you're feeling, like, when she's asleep. And then he even kind of alludes, like, well, now that I've helped you, like, I know I'm not going to see you anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Which is an interesting way to also end a therapy session. <laughs> yes. And so Dr. Crow goes home, and you're like, okay, maybe things will turn out better for him. Maybe him and his wife will reconnect. She's continued to watch their <laughs> wedding video, like, every time he oh, comes yeah. home, and she happens to be asleep watching the wedding video and he starts talking to her and she starts responding and saying things that are kind of confusing like why did you leave me and he's like what are you talking about and then we realize bruce willis is dead he's been dead the whole time he's a ghost yes so you know he was just another one of the charges that you know while this whole time he did in fact help cole he was actually there seeking help from Cole. We now realize that he was one of the dead people that Cole has helped to resolve things for. So definitely a huge twist there. You know, it's not only that Cole sees dead people, but that Dr. Crow himself is dead. And also just even more tragic that this poor nine-year-old that has had a lot of loss, not a lot of stable relationships, and one of the people that he bonded with and got the most help with was, in fact, one of the ghosts that he sees. Also sad. Right. And now a lot more makes sense of why they're never in a traditional office or therapy setting why you know dr crow never interacts with the mom like why his wife is so cold and standoffish to him the whole time like a lot of things fit into place and make more sense in the context of the fact that he's been a ghost the whole time uh but still and within that context we actually do get a little bit more i think of some like insight or we can shed some light on some of the other bigger themes from the movie and when we once we know he's dead we've actually realized that one of the main themes is really this like theme of loss as we've been talking about with cole but then overall like grief and bereavement so once we know that dr crow is dead like you mentioned dr fran like all of his wife anna's behaviors make a lot more sense like she hasn't been just like super angry like ignoring him leaving dinner kissing another guy almost in front of him she hasn't been able to see him right and yet despite that throughout the movie we see like you know it actually starts off with her in bed just like surrounded by tissues when we first see dr crow and her um like you mentioned she's watching the wedding video and this is multiple times throughout the film he comes home to find this wedding video on she goes to the anniversary dinner alone and it's not that she's like pissed off or sad or mad she's very sad because he's not there with her um so when we mention you know as you all might remember dr fran is a bit of an expert in grief and bereavement so when we mention bereavement and grief dr fran like what does that what do those terms mean and what are we really talking about Yeah, grief is the one we probably hear the most. I think that's a term that most people have heard. But bereavement is the more formal term for the state of loss when someone close to you has died. Um, And responses to grief will really vary based on the individual. You've probably heard of like the five stages of grief, um, which was popularized by psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. So that's like denial, then anger bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. There's this idea that we move through that process in a very linear, clear way. But what we really know is that it can look very different for different people based on so many different factors. And I think like we see with Anna and some of the other characters, like 
grief and bereavement can play out in different ways, like you mentioned, Dr. Fran. So people might be crying. They might have trouble sleeping. They might have changes in their appetite. They might feel less productive or less energized, less, you know, have less energy to do things that they want to do. Um, some people can have difficulty with acceptance. So, you know, not wanting to acknowledge that the loss has occurred. Some people might be angry. And, you know, there are like situations where people might even be angry at the loved one that they lost, right, for them going away. I think we can see that a little bit if we think of Cole in terms of the grief over losing his father. He is angry at his father for leaving. Um, you know, I think mm-hmm. there's also some anger there. Um, there can also be feelings of guilt. Um, and then these emotions can be very intense or kind of seem like mood swings. Um, again, related to Anna, we do see at one point also, or rather Dr. Crow notices, that she's even been prescribed Zoloft. Um, and we know that, I'm not sure about the timeline, but it says like the next fall. So we can, and she was at their wedding anniversary. So we can like assume that maybe he's been dead for like about a year. Um, so, you know, she's mm-hmm. been really struggling with the loss for a year and, and is now prescribed an antidepressant to kind of help with even some of those symptoms that can cross over. Like we mentioned, like the changes in appetite, sleep, the changes in mood. And although it's not a formal diagnosis in the DSM-5 as of now, there is a term of more like complicated bereavement, which is usually when that bereavement and that grief go on longer or kind of like an extended period of time or may require like additional intervention like medication um, so that it's kind of this above and beyond kind of what we think of as like normal or like typical bereavement, but kind of, you know, uh, above and beyond that might require additional treatment or intervention. We might call that like complicated bereavement, which is maybe what Anna is going through like a year later. It seems like that could be the case for sure. We don't know too much about Anna other than these little clues that we've chatted about. Um, But I think it's safe to say that as a whole, you know, the sixth sense is really about like loss, right? Like we've talked about like Cole losing his father. We know that his mother lost her mother, right? His grandma. We know that Anna has lost (laughs) Dr. Crow. I mean, we don't know that until the end. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's just this theme of death overall. Like Cole sees dead people and the dead people are afraid to be dead and to pass on. So just one of the major themes of the movie that we wanted to highlight here before wrapping up. Well, I think that is about it for Sixth Sense. We covered a lot of content in different areas today, uh, but we always want to wrap up with our PH don'ts. This is not a safe place. Sorry. Are you going to like keep touching me like that? That guy is a total loon. But I cannot talk about my clients. I cannot talk about my clients. That's it. Great, great job, everyone. Thank you. Don't conduct therapy in public areas. Don't tell your significant other details about your patients over dinner. Don't overshare personal details, such as your marital discord, with your patients that are children. Don't solve ghost murders with your patients. Don't haunt children or any other potential patients. And don't do ghost therapy. All right, Dr. Sam, what are your overall impressions of The Sixth Sense? I will say, I think that this one, you know, like we mentioned, it's over 20 years old. It holds up. Like, it's a good movie. It's entertaining. Um, Haley Joel Osment, he was 10 years old when they filmed this movie, and he was playing a Mm nine-year-old. Obviously very appropriate. Phenomenal acting for, like, such intense and emotionally difficult content. I thought he did a really nice job. I thought they did a nice job, you know, as best they could, um, showing some of the complexities of the characters. It was still very suspenseful, you know, so I think overall it was an enjoyable movie. It definitely holds up. I could see why it's so pervasive in culture and, you know, has, like, really lingered and uh, throughout the test of time. What about you, Dr. Fran? 
Yeah, I would agree. Again, I had seen this movie probably when I was much younger, <laughs> but watching it as an adult and kind of with this lens, I really enjoyed it. Um, I was, it was suspenseful. Like it keeps you on the edge of your seat. Like you're worried there's going to be a jump scare at any moment. Um, but overall, I thought like the story arc and the twist and everything um, was just done really well. And again, the acting, especially by um, the actor who plays Cole is really, really well done. Like he's very impressive uh, for his age and that in that role. Um, I will also give a little plug for any Lonely Island fans. You know the twist already if you've heard the song that mentions what happens at the end of this movie. When Bruce Willis was dead at the end of Sixth Sense. I still can't believe that there are people out there that didn't know the twist ending. Um, Obviously, you know, one of the greatest twists in movie history. So uh, rightfully earned that title. And now this one's a little bit trickier. We're going to go into our DSM-5 Diagnosing Shows and Movies rating, but kind of tricky because it was all ghost therapy and he was dead and, and you know, Cole wasn't hallucinating. So I don't know how we're going to rate this one. What do you think, Dr. Fred? Um, I mean, if we're going to pretend like he's not a ghost yeah. for this rating, which I feel like is the best way for me to do it, I would say maybe like a solid three. Yeah. Uh, like mostly good. There were a few kind of ethical violations and ethical concerns, which I guess probably should bump it down, but maybe I'm giving him a little bit of points because he's a ghost. <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like a three, somewhere in the middle there. What about you? He's maybe as ethical as he could have been as a ghost because he couldn't talk to other parents for, like, consent. And, you know, one of the things we dinged him on was sharing confidential information, but as it turns out, she couldn't hear him anyway, so... <laughs> um, I agree. I think, you know, he did utilize some tactics like we've talked about, like, trying to play games, the miracle question, like building rapport, like establishing trust. Cole found it to be a very positive um, and productive relationship. So I would agree with the three. It is tricky because for all the reasons we mentioned. Um, But I think in terms of like things that are really egregious or might make people like turned off about going to therapy, there were none of those. And in fact, it showed like that a therapist could be a really helpful and supportive person. And so for that, I think, you know, Mm -hmm. I'll give it a three. And I think they did a nice job of portraying the difficulties of coping for a child. One, a child who's been through like a difficult loss with like parental divorce. But then if this was real and he really was seeing ghosts, I think the way Cole reacted makes a lot of sense. So I would say like the way they portrayed Cole and his responses to the stressors he was dealing with seems pretty accurate of what something like that could look like. That's very true. And we didn't even uh, have the opportunity to get too much into that. But, you know, he asks his mom if he can sleep in bed with her. He has like a little safety tent where he like feels safe and secure. Mm -hmm. He has like little like totems and toys that he feels safe with. So, you know, I definitely agree like his reaction and the way that a child might respond in those situations was 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 done fairly well um and i think just with the other characters too like showing their struggles like his mom or with anna crow i think that the nuances of the other characters was done well too yeah cool well that's it for sixth sense you know we're hope we hope that you out there are enjoying the spooky session series we hope that you all are not seeing ghosts or dead people unless it's halloween and they're in costume um so as always please do check out social media we have our october monthly Freudian scriptures spotlight up on Andrew Bontemps. So please do check that out. It's a great feature. And don't forget to leave a review on any of our platforms for a free sticker. Check out our website for resources and glossary of new terms. We covered a lot of content today. So a lot of interesting information on the website. We also would love to hear your thoughts on Sixth Sense. Do you like this movie? Did it scare you? Does it fall into that category of horror for you like it does for me sometimes? Um, We'd also love to hear any questions you have about psychology up movies and TV shows you'd like us to put on our couch and break down next. 
And we really are going to be launching our 50-50 session next. <laughs> so please join us for that one. It's um, going to be a shift from our spooky sessions, but we think also really enjoyable with a lot of new content and a different type of psychology, health psychology, which we have not gotten into yet. So definitely check that one out. And as always, please subscribe, rate, and review. Time's up. See you next session. We'd like to thank our producer, Brandon, creative director, Eric, and webmaster, Don. Happy Halloween. Bruce Willis was dead at the end of Sixth Sense. <laughs>